All right. Good to see everybody. God bless you guys. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 18? Revelation 18. We are currently in the final parenthesis of the book of Revelation. The first parenthesis was chapter 7. Second was chapters 10 through 14. And now the final parenthesis is chapter 17 and 18. What is a parenthesis? It um, stops the flow of the chronology to take a moment to get us to maybe catch our breath in some way, uh, but to then look back and fill in some of the details that were left out in those previous chapters. Now, as we have said numerous times in the past, in chapters 17 and 18, we are brought face to face with two Babylons. The Babylon of chapter 17 is religious. The Babylon of chapter 8 is commercial. Many commentators believe that these two Babylons are one and the same. I personally believe that the mystery Babylon, spoken of in chapter 17, the world church, all right, uh, will be headquartered in Rome, where the Roman Catholic Church itself will be its head, or the mother church, or the umbrella church, where this worldwide ecumenical gathering of many different faiths uh, from around the world coming together for uh, as a world church a world church um, during the first half of the tribulation period uh, i do believe that the pope could in fact be the false prophet when this world church emerges it's going to be based in rome that's going to be the headquarters okay um and that when Rome eventually goes down in the midst of the tribulation, at that time the religious center of the world will shift from Rome to Jerusalem. Why do I feel that way? Because it is at Jerusalem that the false prophet will put the image of the beast, the Antichrist, in the Holy of Holies of the rebuilt temple there in Jerusalem. This will happen at the midpoint of the tribulation period. And at that time... Um, all other faiths would be, will be outlawed. Because starting at that point, now the Antichrist, uh, false prophet, and their leader, uh, their followers, will uh, begin a brand new, launch a brand new religion where the Antichrist is worshipped as God. As we've already seen, for the Antichrist to gain power and solidify his global kingdom, he initially has to use the world church to help him. Again, chapter 17, we see the world church described as a harlot riding the beast. The context is the beast of chapter 17, beginning there, is the, is the Antichrist world government, his world government. And so initially he needs this religious group to help him solidify his power. His world government is uh, in its fledgling state. And it needs a little time to get its strength and footing. And so initially he uh, allows the world church to think they're really in control. That's why we see the woman riding the beast. Like a, a, a rider of a horse rides the animal to steer and direct it, right? The rider's in charge. Here she's given the impression she's really in charge. But around the midpoint uh, at, of the uh, tribulation period, uh, he no longer needs her the Antichrist, 
And so he and his followers turn on her and kill her. We saw this in chapter 17. I'll just read a couple verses. Verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, uh, these are the ten, the ten kings that you know will rule with the Antichrist over the ten regions of the earth. But the, I'll just paraphrase. The ten kings which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Verse 18, And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And again, guys, just by way of quick review, in John's day, there was no doubt which city reigned over the kings of the earth. It was Rome, very clearly Rome. Rome was the political, economic, and religious center of the world in John's day. Uh, the Babylon of Revelation 18, though, will be the commercial capital of the world located somewhere other than Rome, I'm convinced. And it will be the center of capitalism and commerce during the tribulation period. As we've already talked about, many people believe that the Babylon of Revelation chapter 18 will literally be the ancient city of Babylon rebuilt on the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. Uh, and so just, again, I don't believe commercial Babylon chapter 18... Uh, will be the same city as religious that religious Babylon, chapter 17, will occupy. Again, the city of chapter 18 is going to be the capital of the political and uh, uh, political power and commercial wealth of the beast, or the Antichrist, and his kingdom. So one more time, guys, religious Babylon is going to be destroyed at the midpoint of the tribulation period, whereas political-slash-commercial Babylon will be destroyed just prior to the return of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. Keep that in mind. It's going to make a difference in tonight's study, just so you uh, understand, all right? So verse 1, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. When God destroys commercial Babylon, the merchants of the world are going to mourn. It says here, why will they mourn? Well, they're going to mourn the loss of many fine goods and commodities. Okay. Uh, these will be those who the Bible calls the earth dwellers. These are those that have always and will continue to lay up for themselves treasures on the earth. Their heart is not really, they, they, many of them are just atheists, militant atheists um, today, but also especially in the tribulation period. But we see that these people today, they are what the Bible calls earth dwellers. We all live on the earth, but that's different from dwelling on the earth. Dwelling implies, in fact, the Greek word um, in Ephesians 3, let, let uh, Jesus Christ dwell in your hearts by faith. And the Greek word means to settle down and make him feel at home, which means we can't be living in sin, right? And that's the idea of the earth dwellers. They have settled down. This is their home. 
We live on the earth, but this is not our home. We're passing through. We are pilgrims and sojourners on our way to the celestial city uh, as Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan wrote, right? We're just passing through. And, uh, but, but, but that's our home. We're looking for a, 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 a city whose builder and maker is God, okay? Just so we're clear on that, and I know we are, but, um, you know, if the, if the earth is your God, and materialism is all you live for, laying up treasures on the earth, when the earth begins to be judged and destroyed, I would imagine you're going to mourn. Now, the people of God are going to have a different reaction as we're going to see in a moment. And it's interesting how that the world and the people of God are often at odds with each other in so many ways. And this is going to be one of those. But verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is a very interesting verse. It's hard for us to comprehend that a child of God could be a part of commercial Babylon in some way. Now, I say a part, not helping it, you know, helping to run it, but just benefiting from it in some way. It's hard for us to read verse 4 and understand how wicked Babylon is. Um, and yet you have some of God's own people during the tribulation period that are a part of it in some way that he has to call out from Babylon. Um, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. It's hard for us to comprehend this, but verse 4 suggests that that will be a reality for some, listen, during the first half of the tribulation period. One, one commentator had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, throughout the terrifying judgments of the tribulation, God will save people. Well, we've studied that by the millions. So during the terrifying judgments of the tribulation, God will save people. The result of the gospel preached, uh, preaching, the result of gospel preaching by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, and an angel flying in, in mid heaven will, will yield the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever known. Interesting. Many of these believers will be martyred for their faith in Christ when they refuse to take the mark of the beast. Verse uh, chapter 13, verses 15 and 16 especially talk about this. The survivors, now these are believers, uh, that are not initially or quickly killed by the Antichrist. The survivors will face powerful temptations to participate in the system. Family and friends will no doubt pressure them to save themselves by accepting the mark of the beast. The need to obtain the basic necessities of life will also pressure them to conform to the system of the world around them, end quote. The command from God to his people to flee from Babylon. And, and guys, this is more, more of a command to the heart than it is to the body. Because right now we can make a case that we're living in, this is Babylon, the whole world, really. Uh, it's the, the whole world fallen system, uh, which is everywhere. So we can make the case that uh, when God calls us out of Babylon, he's talking about our hearts. 
we have to live in the world, but we, we shouldn't love the world is the idea, all right? But uh, the command from God to his people to flee from Babylon, with all of its evil allurements, is something that God's Old Testament prophets constantly cried out. I won't have you turn to these, but you can write down the references, all right? Because this admonition is nothing new. This God has been, been sending prophets to proclaim this admonition, this, this command, for a long time. Jeremiah 51, verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon, and every one save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Jeremiah 51, verse 45. My people go out of the midst of her, and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. Isaiah 52, verse 11. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Well, of course, those who bear the vessels of the Lord were the Jewish people, uh, many of them living in Babylon at the time. But the idea is that, um, uh, you know, and in my morning devotions, I just came through uh, uh, Leviticus and then Numbers, where God was, uh, he assigned various families of the Levites uh, to bear the vessels of the Lord. That would be for the worship of God, right? Uh, there were uh, things that had to be carried in the wilderness and then set up when God said it's time to set up camp. And uh, just everything from the furniture of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant to the table of showbread, the menorah, uh, and, and, and then to the panels that marked off the, uh, the, the, the fencing, I should say, that marked off uh, the um, area where the tabernacle sat, but then the boards that were covered with gold that made up the walls of the tabernacle. So there was a lot of things that had to be transported. These were the vessels of the Lord. And God is basically using that, uh, I believe, to talk to all of his people in the New Covenant as well, because we're the priests of the Most High God. We are the ones that have been set apart for service to our God, right? And we must not be entangled in the things of Babylon, of this world, right? Uh, and that brings me to the point I want to make. Uh, the call of God to his people to come out of commercial Babylon, which, guys, by the way, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, is going to be the ultimate vanity fair. The ultimate vanity fair. But the call of God to his people to come out of commercial Babylon with its materialistic allurements doesn't just apply to the people of God who will be alive during the Antichrist reign in the tribulation period, but something that applies to all Christians living today as well. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And remember that Paul is writing this, well, the two epistles he fired off to Corinth, the church of Corinth, um, was a very carnal church, a very carnal church. Yet he calls them brethren. He says that they had all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation in their church. Um, they were saved, and yet very carnal. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, Paul writes this, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So apparently, Corinth, the people, the, the Christians in Corinth were 
fellowshipping quite readily and consistently with unbelievers in Corinth who were not a good witness for them. That's why Paul went on to say, um, bad company corrupts good morals. We, we need to hang, hang around the people of the world. We're going to witness to them, be a light. But we should never ha- hang out with or have fellowship with the people of the world because uh, we are called to come out and be separate, right? Uh, pray for them, love them, witness to them, but don't become one with them in the sense that, you know, you have this deep abiding relationship where you're sharing your heart with these unbelievers. Oh, but we've known each other all our lives. Well, that may be before you got saved, but now you know Jesus. And love them still, pray for them constantly, but you can't be one with them as you once were when you were an unbeliever. So don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It's hard for us to kind of comprehend how some Christians feel very comfortable uh, with unbelievers. That should not be. I mean, as Paul lays out here, your light, their darkness. You have the Lord, they're, you know, the children of the devil still. How is it that you're coming together and you're having fellowship with them, right? It's a kind of an enigma, but it happens all the time. Again, because there are a lot of Christians who are just carnally minded. And, um, you know, as um, my pastor used to like to say, um, there's too much uh, of... Uh, of Christ in them for them to be really comfortable any longer in the world or there's too much of the world of them to really be comfortable around spirit-filled Christians so they're kind of in the wilderness come out of Egypt but they haven't entered the promised land or the life of the spirit so they're kind of wandering in the wilderness saved but very carnal and so on Um, but this warning guys again is directed at children of God those who have put themselves, if you're looking for an illustration that I, or an example that best illustrates this whole idea, look no farther than Lot living in Sodom. Remember how that Lot was Abraham's nephew, and Uncle Abraham and Lot had a lot of herds and herdsmen, a lot of flocks, and they couldn't all, uh, so many flocks and all, they couldn't all graze in the same area. So there was fighting between their herdsmen. And one day Abraham said to Lot, look, we're, we're brethren, we're family. Uh, look, you, you go ahead and take whatever land you want to give you first dib, and I'll take what's left. So Lot looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah. The plain there was very fertile. And so he says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. 20 years goes by, and we come to uh, Genesis 19, and now it's not, Lot hasn't just pitched his tent towards Sodom. He's living in Sodom. He's a city alderman, we would say. He's among those who stay, sit 
at the gate of the city, uh, City Hall, that would be what it was back then, where court uh, cases were, were uh, decided and so on, right? This is where the city leaders would sit and lead the uh, city from. And um, the question is, what was Lot doing in Sodom? Now, from the New Testament, we know that Lot was truly saved. He was truly saved. Um, but I've always wondered, why did Lot feel the need to live in Sodom? He could have lived, Abraham didn't feel the need to move into a godless city like that. Abraham stayed living in tents out in the, the, uh, the deserts and all. You have, to under, you have to think, what was Lot thinking? What are a lot of Christians thinking that feel at home in the world? I don't know. It's an enigma to me. It's a mystery, but it happens. Um, these are God's people that he is calling to here. Um, they're in a place they shouldn't be or they're going to be uh, from Revelation 18. But today even, there's a lot of folks that are like Lot, and they are really um, living in a place they shouldn't live. And I'm speaking in their hearts, uh, in, in their minds. Well, they've justified certain behaviors and relationships and so on. Uh, but they're living in a bad place, a place that's ripe for judgment. And yet, and yet, Second Peter 2, why don't you turn there? Second Peter 2. Peter talks about the judgment that God finally brought upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And 2 Peter 2, verse 6, and how God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Um, I don't know. Maybe Lot, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe Lot had a heart to reach the people of Sodom so much, he decided the only way to really reach them was to live among them. I'm being really gracious to Lot. But, we could be on very solid ground because Peter himself says this was a righteous man. And his righteous soul was vexed from day to day as he watched all the ungodliness going on around him. So if his soul was vexed, why did he stay unless he really wanted to win people over to God, the God of Israel? Okay, uh, possibly, right? But Peter uses it as an illustration in a broader sense to say, look, all of God's people are living in Sodom. Uh, in a sense. The whole world is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And yet before God judges this world, we already studied this in chapter 4 of Revelation, before God pours His judgment out upon this Christ-rejecting evil world, what's He going to do? He is going to evacuate His people, like He did Lot, out of the world before His judgment is going to fall because God knows how to deliver the righteous out of temptations out of coming tribulation and reserve those unbelievers who love the unrighteousness that they're living in reserving them from judgment so 
reserving them for judgment. I'm sorry. Um, so you, you take it for how you want. I just know that um, God will not punish the righteous with the wicked. There is no reason for God to judge his people be, uh, during the tribulation period. Now, there's a lot of folks that disagree with that. Not that he's not going to be actively working during the tribulation to save millions of people, as we just saw. Of course he is. But the church age is going to end with the rapture. And then God will turn his face back to Israel and begin to work because he's got one last seven-year period he has set aside to deal with the nation of Israel. And that's where the 144,000 come in and this incredible ministry that they have during the tribulation period. And I think it's a ministry that's going to bring millions and millions to Christ, possibly more to Christ than has ever come to the Lord in the history of the world will get saved during the tribulation period. Uh, but there's no reason for us to be punished with the wicked. The rapture is God evacuating us off this earth be before he pours his judgments out, which the world deserves, but we're saved. We've accepted Christ. Our sins are washed away. We've already bowed the knee to our Savior. He's our king. We're not living in rebellion any longer like the people of the world and so on. All right, All right back to Revelation 18, verse 4 again. Where God says, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues, verse 5, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Did you get the language there? Her sins have reached to heaven, as if they had to be built up one after the other. In other words, God did not just blast them for a couple transgressions, right? He patiently, you know, while they stacked their sin up like a tower. Think of the Tower of Babel, right? Unbelievers have piled up their sins, and finally they've reached to heaven in a sense, where God can no longer ignore or be gracious. And not, not that he ever ignores sin, but he's gracious. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? Long-suffering. Uh, but even... God Almighty's grace comes to an end at one point and judgment has to come, right? I, I love it how it says that God will, listen, remember her iniquities. But in Hebrews 8.12, it says, I will remember the sins of my people no more. Because they're under the blood, right? They're under the blood. The sins of the world, they will never be forgotten. If people die in those sins, they will pay for them for all eternity. Whereas those, and you, you could be the worst sinner in the world. I was just talking to somebody today on the phone who um, wasn't sure because he wasn't living a perfect Christian life that maybe he wasn't even saved. Well, we're all commanded to judge ourselves, to make sure we're in the faith, right? Uh, Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Not that there has to be, you know, much, much fruit to prove a person saved. But, you know, your attitudes, the way you look at life, um, the way you, you know, read the Bible and so on, there are things that indicate you're saved. But I was telling this person, I said, you know, in my desk I have a track that was written by David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz is... is, is was known by Son of Sam. That was a title given to him by the newspapers. So he was the mass murderer in the 80s. 
who killed a bunch of people was in New York. And then he was arrested. He was caught, arrested, and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, and in prison, he met a Christian. And the Christian was witnessing to him. And at first, Berkowitz dismissed everything as a joke. It's ridiculous, you know, nonsense, hard heart. But you know, the Word of God is living and powerful. And it just keeps chipping away at the hardest heart. And finally, this guy in love kept witnessing to Berkowitz, and he finally gets saved. And I have heard of numerous pastors that have visited him in prison that will tell you, I'm telling you what, this guy's the real deal. He is definitely saved. He knows he's never going to get out. He's not trying to play up to the authorities or the, or the warden and all to maybe get paroled. He knows he's going to be in there for the rest of his life. He's fine with that. He leads Bible studies. He does discipleship groups. He writes uh, uh, pamphlets and maybe even books. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, th there are many times when God will save the worst of us to prove to the rest of us that nobody is beyond the grace of God. Oh, I'm too bad. You don't know, Pastor. I know God could never save me. Where sin abounds, grace does what? Super abounds, the Greek says. There is no sin so great that God can't forgive you and won't forgive you if you come to Christ. The only unpardonable sin, the only sin that will damn you to hell for eternity is the sin of not receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because if you don't receive Christ, you can't be forgiven. But I just thank God that his grace is incredible. Incredible. And yeah, we've all heard the stories of some horrible person getting saved. You know, um, I, I heard a story not long ago about a hitman. Mafia hitman. 300 kills to his, I'd say credit, that's a bad word, right? His account, I don't know what you call it. And God, I've got the testimony, God got a hold of him, and he's a believer today. Well, I don't believe in Melanie, they can never go to heaven. Well, then you might not get to heaven because you're upset because God is so gracious, he allows somebody like that to be in heaven too. Won't that be a, the ultimate irony for a quote-unquote good person? To reject Jesus Christ because so many bad people are going to heaven? That's what we teach. We're all bad people, but they don't understand that. We're all sinners saved by grace, right? Um, but, uh, you know, amazing. This, But this seems to be the final call of God to his people uh, still in this corrupt system to come out of her, come out of her. The church of Jesus Christ needs to understand this call is going out to God's people now. I, I don't know what you're waiting for. Some Christians, they're, 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 they're just, I don't know. They're, there's no passion for God. There's no burden for the lost. Now, I don't know their hearts. It might be that some of them who call themselves Christians are, are not even saved. I think that's possible. I was talking to my wife. She was listening to Pastor David Jeremiah, who I respect, uh, was teaching uh, a series on the Word of God. And he made the statement that, look, if you have no heart for God's Word, if you have no hunger at all for the Word of God, I question the validity of your salvation. Because if you're really 
Now, we don't read, none of us read the Bible as much as we, we would like to or we feel we should. But it's there, that desire, right? We love to hear it. That's why you folks are here tonight. You want to hear about God's Word. That demonstrates something is going on in your heart. But um, I think that God is calling out to His people, given how close we are to Jesus' return. It's time to get out of the world. It's time to get serious. It's time to, to draw close to me. There's some rough days coming. And if you're not close to me drawing strength from me, when the devil comes at you like a flood, you're going to get washed away. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but you're not going to be a light. You're not going to stand up for God and be a, a light to the, those in darkness. So verse 6. Render to her, Babylon, commercial Babylon, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mix, mix double for her. That's a cup of judgment. We've seen that cup uh, at various times in the study. It's also the cup that Jesus Christ drank from when he went to the cross. He took our judgment upon himself. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, he said. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Well, no, it wasn't possible for us to get saved without Jesus dying in our place. So he drank the cup full strength, which means he drank our judgment. He took his, our judgment upon himself, right? And so on. But here, uh, this this cup is being, you know, is 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 the cup of judgment, they're saying, look, um, according to her works, mix double in this cup of judgment, right? Double for her. Uh, the word render there in verse 6 is a Greek word that literally means to pay a debt or give back that which is due. God will give commercial Babylon exactly what she deserves exactly what she has coming let me read to you from obadiah chapter 1 verse 15 for the day of the lord that's a term of judgment the day of the lord the day of the lord uh, for the day of the lord upon all the nations is near as you have done it shall be done to you your reprisal shall return upon your own head let me say this. The world is not getting away with anything. Recently, our justice system has become so corrupted under certain leaders that it's infuriating that we have a two-tier justice system, one for conservatives and one for the left, one for the right, one for the left. And I'm not going to get into it because I could spend a half hour just venting on that. But we think that those who are doing evil are getting away with something. The Bible says every day they get away with something, violating what God has said, doing evil. They're not getting away with anything. What they're doing is, as the Bible says, they're storing up wrath, judgment, for the day of judgment.
I remember hearing a story of a man that got saved on his 100th birthday. Wow. Praise God. God waited 100 years for this guy to get right with him. Now, while we think, praise God, oh, the grace of God is awesome. For every day he lived without receiving Christ, he was storing up more judgment. If he had not gotten saved at 100 and died, his judgment in hell would have been much greater than the person who dies maybe at 40, who hasn't had uh, all those extra years to build up more and more wrath because of living more and more sinful life. Sure, our God's, our, the grace of our God is an awesome thing, but it is a two-edged sword. When a person repents, praise God. God is patient, long-suffering, waiting for them to get saved. If they die at our very old age, all they have done is brought more wrath and judgment upon themselves for eternity. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because you may not get it tomorrow, but maybe even worse than that, you may get it tomorrow. And if you don't repent, it's another day that you're storing up judgment in the day of judgment. But this is interesting, verse 6. Repay her double according to her works. Mix double for her. Now, guys, double restitution was a requirement of Levitical law in cases of theft. Let me say it again. Double restitution was a requirement of Levitical law in cases of theft. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 22, verses 4, 7, and 9. This perhaps is a commentary on how Babylon has made her wealth, or will make her wealth, because we're still looking at her in the future. All right. Perhaps this is a commentary on how Babylon will have made her wealth during the tribulation period, and that is through dishonest dealings and blatant theft. Let me just say it again. I think we studied this last time. We talked about the Great Reset, right? If you weren't here, you can go online and listen to that. The Great Reset, guys, will be, listen, the biggest theft of personal property and, um, and finances of anything that has ever happened in human history. And that will lay the groundwork for the Antichrist final, the one world government. Um, as I said, when we studied the Great Reset, um, some believe that the Antichrist will rise to power, impose the Great Reset, and get his kingdom off and running. Some believe it may happen before he rises to power. They're going to reset the world's economies, and that will give rise to the Antichrist, who will then come in. Uh, and be placed as the leader of the world government, all right? We don't know for sure. I know this. The Great Reset is going to take place when a very small group of unelected, power-hungry, uh, uber-wealthy people who think they're gods decide to take over everything, impose their will upon everybody on the planet, uh, and do a Great Reset. What does that mean? Uh, I had one guy in the church several years ago who grew up in Romania, and when it went communist, Romania, he said, you went to bed maybe with $20,000 in the bank, you woke up with two hundred. Everything was reset. Your personal wealth was gone. They, they confiscated it, and so on. You get the idea. And I believe that 
we could see God is saying, because you have stolen from the people of the earth, thou shalt not steal. That made the top ten. Now you're going to get double punishment for what you've done. Verse 7. In the, same, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, the Greek word there for luxuriously could be translated sensually. Sensually. In, in the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously or sensually, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Guys, there are three sins that call for Babylon's judgment. I'll give them to you quickly. First of all, she was proud. She glorified herself. Number one, she was proud. She glorified herself. That is a big no-no. Everything in this world that is good comes from God, right? Everything that is good comes from God. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. You take credit for what God has done, that's blasphemy in a sense. That's a great sin. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. In my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. All right? Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 17, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. The first one that leads the list is pride, a proud look. And then a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. You can read those on your own. But pride leads the list, a proud look. Of course, James 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Whenever a person or a people, a nation, understands that God has blessed them, God has watched over them. Now me, I've made my fortune I did all the hard work. Deuteronomy 8, who do you think gives you power to get wealth? Is it not I, the Lord? Who gives you a healthy body? Who allows you to walk around and do the job you do and so on and so forth? You got, you know, Israel started out humble, right? When God established them. And they, God began to lead them against their enemies in Canaan. They began to conquer the Canaanites, right? And for many years they have appreciated God and they worshiped God and they gave him glory for what he had done and then slowly they began to get self-sufficient proud and they began to think that their greatness was due to their own hard work courage and so on so first of all she was proud she glorified herself number two she pursued self-gratification she lived sensuously the Bible pronounces those who do so, who live sensual lives. Sexual desire is everything. They are dead even while they live. Remember what Paul said to Timothy, a young pastor, about a woman living in the church he pastored who was just a very uh, sensual person. And uh, Paul said, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. People who live for sexual pleasure, that's... That defines them, they're dead. Uh, and as God sees them, there's no spiritual life there. It's all the flesh. The flesh is death. 
Of course, we all know Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, hell, judgment. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. You'll reap what you sow. It's as simple as that. Nobody can blame God. Of course they do, but they, they, they really have no grounds. Nobody can blame God because they wind up going to hell. God did everything in his power to keep them from going to hell. He died for them. He did all the work. All they had to do was believe. And yet, many don't want to believe. And yet they want to blame God because God sends people to hell. Technically, God is not sending anyone to hell. People choose to go there. But number three, she was guilty of self-sufficiency, of presumptuously overestimating her power. Now, let me stop. There's a second part to that. But let me just stop there because these two and a half, if I can put it that way, she was proud. She glorified herself. She pursued self-gratification. She lived sensually. And number three, she was guilty of self-sufficiency, of presumptuously overestimating her power. If you don't see America in that, you're not looking very hard. For these things, God is going to judge this city called Babylon during the tribulation period. But right now, America is walking in the same exact sins. And if God's going to judge Babylon then, what makes us think he won't judge America now? And is that why America is not mentioned really in Bible prophecy? Because we have been judged by God and we are no more. Now, I hope it's because God does such a work in America and so many people get saved through a great awakening, revival, revival of the church, a great awakening of our nation, that so many get saved when the rapture happens, the country's going to be pretty vacant. That's my, I, I think it's probably wishful thinking, but that, that, that's what gets my vote. All right, number three, she was guilty of self-sufficiency, of presumptuously overestimating her power. She said in her heart, I sit as queen and am not a widow and will never see mourning, M-O-U-R-I-N-G. Guys, that proud boast is nothing new. It echoes, that, it echoes that of ancient Babylon who said, I will be queen forever. I will not sit as a widow, nor know loss of children. Isaiah 47, verses 7 and 8. Zephaniah 2, verse 15. I think this is interesting. Her statement, I sit as queen. Now think about that. I sit as queen. This is Babylon, right? Which started from the tower of what? Babel. I believe this is a reference to the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven. Which was a title for Semiramis, who was the wife of Nimrod, but also, as we have discussed when we studied Genesis 11, but also she was the high priestess of the original Babylonian mystery religion slash cult that was founded by her husband Nimrod 
again, the Tower of Babel, he um, initiated that. Uh, he built the city and a tower. Uh, the tower was for worship. The city was for commerce. So even in the very beginning, we see Babylon is both uh, a, uh, a religious thing and a commercial entity. And we see it come to fruition here in the tribulation period. But um, I believe this, this is a, a slam, a religious, a rebellious, I should say, declaration against the king of heaven. I, I'm the queen of heaven. That is a, a slam, a rebellious declaration against the king of heaven. Replacing him, listen, and the true worship of him, read John 4, verses 23 and 4, how the Father is looking for true worshipers, right? If there are true worshipers, then there are also false worshipers. Even as the context indicates, Jesus speaking to a woman by the well of Sychar, Samaria. Uh, her and her people worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And he said, you and your people worship, you do not know what. We know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews. So there is a tr true worship and a false worship. And, you know, people get upset with that. You know, because well, who are you? There's many roads that lead to God. Um, there's many roads that lead to some place. It's not God. There's only one road that leads to heaven. And that's Jesus Christ and the way of the cross. But this idea that uh, the world by this point is, is going to be so rebellious, they've rejected the king of heaven, king of kings and lord of lords, who's coming back to establish a kingdom on the earth. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the worship of the true and living God. And they have fallen into hook, line, and sinker, headfirst into pagan worship, of which the worship of the queen of heaven was supreme. Supreme. Oh, I'm picking on Catholics tonight. I was a Roman Catholic, so, you know, I grew up in that system. But this worship of the Queen of Heaven is something the Roman Catholic Church has adopted. I, I, I'm sorry to say that. I told you that many years ago when I was a kid, we had one of those big coffee table Bibles. You know, looks good in a coffee table. I don't know if we ever opened it. I, I didn't read out of it, except maybe one time. I opened it up to see what was inside, and um, it was beautifully illustrated. And uh, you would turn to the book of Genesis, and there was a beautiful drawing of the Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the serpent and so on and so forth. Turn a little farther, a beautiful drawing that depicted Noah and the flood a little farther. You know, as you, in the New Testament, you saw Jesus teaching on the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you saw different things. And as I flipped to the end of the Bible, after Revelation, there was two pictures, and every picture had a scripture verse next to it to show you where the picture was drawn from, what scripture. As you flip to the back, after Revelation, there was two more pictures. The first one was Mary being, you know, the assumption of Mary being taken into heaven without dying. You saw her flying up in the sky, no scripture reference. And the next picture was Jesus Christ. Mary was on a throne. Jesus was behind her, putting a crown on her head, crowning her 
queen of heaven. No, no scripture reference. Did you want to read Jeremiah 7? God condemns the worship of the queen of heaven because it is pagan, it's occultic, it goes back to the Tower of Babel, and yet it's going to be adopted again as the ultimate, um, I guess, thumb in the eye of God. You're the king of heaven, but we reject you. We worship the queen of heaven, which is the same way of saying we worship every false religious system that has ever been on the face of the earth because we will worship anything and everyone other than you, God. We hate you that much. It's just amazing to me. It's just absolutely amazing to me. Um, here is God's devastating reply. We'll have to finish with this. Verse 8. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For listen, strong is the Lord God who judges her. Wow. I love that. This calls our attention to the suddenness of her destruction and that it will be by fire. In fact, so great is her mourning. It's counted as a plague along with death and famine in verse 8. Can mourning be a judgment from God? Yeah. Yeah. If all joy comes from God, when God removes the joy from a nation because it's turned its back on God, the result is mourning and all the inevitable consequences that as Americans right now, what's your general attitude? One of happiness and joy as you look at your country? It's grief, sorrow, mourning, fear. That's because as a nation, as we have kicked God out more and more from our nation, what is rushed in to fill the void is all the stuff the devil gives. But it really is a judgment of God. The fear, the, the mourning, uh, of course, death, famine. I mean, God's got a lot of things he can inflict on a person to save them or upon a nation to judge them if they're too far gone. We're seeing it here. But I love this. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Turn to Romans 12 and we'll close. And this is something, guys, we have to really take to heart in the days in which we're living. Because there is so much going on that is so ungodly and so uh, infuriating that we might be prone. I'm talking about abortion clinics and, uh, you know, stumbling upon a Black Lives Matter or Antifa mob burning down things and uh, hurting people that you want to you want to do something to you know seek revenge now revenge is different from protecting your family if somebody breaks into your house that's not revenge that's protecting but I'm talking about taking it upon yourself to uh, avenge the wrong in society here's what God says Re Romans 12 verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, give wrath its proper place. Leave it with God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I know that last verse sounds like, you know, <laughs> hey, treat your enemies with kindness because you're going to just heap more fire on their head for judgment. They have a, a, a worse judgment, you know, the, the more you just treat them nice when they're, you know, the nicer you are to them, the hotter the fires of hell will be for them. Well, that's not really a Christian motivation. So when I've studied this passage, the only thing I can share with you that made sense to me was uh, one commentator said in those days, if a person was the enemy of somebody, but that person repented and, uh, and, and wanted to, uh, to admit they were wrong and to be reconciled, they would walk uh, through the center of town with a pan of burning coals on their heads. I would imagine they had something to protect their heads. But it was a sign of repentance. And Paul is saying, look, don't take vengeance on your enemies. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Because how do you know by loving them and treating them kindly, you might win them to Christ? That's why he goes on to say, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. That's how we need to be. But uh, we'll leave it there. We will pick this up, God willing, next time. So, Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us and do love us. And, Father, this world is full of many wicked and evil people. In fact, Lord Jesus, you told us that the closer we got to your return, evil men would grow worse and worse. But Lord, you still love them. You want, you, you died for them, and you want to see them saved. Now, we are your instruments. We are your hands, your feet, your mouths. Lord, to share the truth with them, to, to love them even though they hate us, that, Lord, they would get saved. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.